Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 1864, a young man, we'll call him Daniel Folsom, wrote a letter to his sister to ask her for help. Daniel had been committed to the New York State Lunatic Asylum at Utica after he returned from his service in the 16th New York. Daniel had served well and had no problems, but when he came home, he started to act strangely. He left work to wander around the town, and he panicked when the draft occurred because he was so afraid that it would mean he would have to go back to the front lines. Daniel had even started to talk about suicide. His father had been worried enough that he had had the young man committed. For months, he was clearly not well. He described himself um, to his hospital attendants as a, quote, crazy, good-for-nothing fellow. And at one point, he begged the asylum attendants to kill him, to put him out of his misery. But in March 1864, after some time in the asylum, Daniel was ready to come home. His only chance to get out of the asylum was to recover fully and convince the superintendent that he was well enough to leave, or to convince his father to come get him out. Not sure he could convince the superintendent of his sanity, he instead wrote to his sister to ask if she could plead with their father on his behalf. Quote, if I stay here any longer, the world will be a blank, and I really think there's a chance for me yet. It is very hard to be confined for so long. End quote. Daniel was mostly worried about getting back to work. Work was how he was going to prove his manhood again. By proving that he could still adhere to masculine codes of behavior through working, living independently, remaining in control of his emotions, maybe he still had a shot at coming back from the deeply stigmatized experience of being institutionalized. It's clear that Daniel was anxious about his manhood. He added a postscript to his letter uh, to his sister that read, I shall try and be a man. What did Daniel mean when he said that he would try to be a man? What did it mean to be a man during the Civil War era? This entire series is, admittedly, a shameless plug for my new book, Bodies in Blue, Disability in the Civil War North. And while the book is, of course, about disability, it is also about manhood. Gender is a two-way street. When we say gender, we're not just using a fancy word for woman or femininity. We're talking about the ideas and expectations that shape what it means to be a man or a woman in a particular time and place. So that's what we're talking about in this series. The various ideas about what it means to be a man in different times and places across history. And since I am our resident Civil War nerd, and we are... <laughs> Shilling my book. In this episode, we're talking about manhood and the Civil War. I am Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. So before we get started, we want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our Augur and Excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. Your generosity will go down in history. <laughs> 
Was that good? So, listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. The concept of gender was one of the things that most blew my mind when I first got to college. I had just never, ever conceived of a difference between, quote unquote, sex and gender. And man, was that the beginning of some stuff in my personal intellectual development. It just kind of blew my my mind right open. Uh, When I started getting into studying history, I actually didn't automatically make the connection between history and gender. And I'm sort of ashamed to say that I thought that women's history was boring. You're boring! (laughs) I mean, (laughs) let's face it, I was interested in war. What do women and gender have to do with war, right? Like guns and ammo and like blowing stuff up. Like that's glory on the battlefield. That's what I thought, right? That's sexist. But once... I realized that men have a gender, too. I was absolutely hooked. And for some reason, I've just always found masculinity fascinating. Um, Marissa here, my (laughs) lovely co-producer, actually wrote the index for my book for me. And while she was working on that index, she texted me and said, Sarah, you're fascinated by men. Like, you really love men. And all of a sudden, I realized oh my God, you're right. Like it was kind of a weird moment for me where I realized, wow, um, you're, you've got me pegged. Like I really am fascinated by men um, and what makes them tick. So all of this is to say that even from the time I was an undergrad, I was really focused on studying the interconnections between warfare and masculinity. I wrote my undergraduate thesis at Wells College about it. Um, My thesis was about masculinity and the Boston elite officers, sometimes known as the Boston Brahmin of the Union Army. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis about it. That one was about violence and masculinity in the 1850s sectional crisis. And of course, it's a major component of what was my dissertation and what is now my book. Um, And just so no one judges me, on this feminist history podcast, I have stopped being so dismissive of women in war and, of course, have stopped being dismissive of women's history. Took me a while, but I came around. Um, it's still not what I studied primarily, but once I got over some internalized misogyny, I recognized how important and how interesting women's history really is. Um, and before I move on, one last thing here. Um, earlier on, when we were first... Um, Right in our, our opening, um, I mentioned that we were going to call this man Daniel Folsom. I just wanted to clarify the reason that we're kind of calling him Daniel Folsom and not saying that's his name is because it's not his name. It's actually a pseudonym um, because Daniel's medical records from the New York State Asylum at Utica are restricted under New York State mental hygiene laws. One of the the reasons or one of the agreements that I had to make to use those records was to use pseudonyms um, or to obscure personal facts about people. So um, that's that's why Daniel's name is not really Daniel. And I know his real name, but you don't. Mm. <laughs> a mystery. Juicy. Okay. While manhood is a major component of Sarah's book, it isn't a straightforward accounting of ideas about manhood during the war era. Instead, it's more of a close analysis of the meaning and experience of disability for men uh, who became wounded or who became sick during the Civil War. Identities like gender, race, class, ability, etc., they intersect. 
they combine to shape each other's interactions with the world a little differently. So in the book, while it's about masculinity, um, it's really about what it meant to be a disabled man. In other words, the combination of disability and masculinity. But today we're going to strip out the disability stuff and just focus on the masculinity. When a disabled man, like Daniel Folsom, said that he would, quote, try to be a man, what did he mean? For so long, because men have been assumed to be the viewpoint, it can be sort of easy to forget that men also have a gender. This is especially true in Civil War scholarship. While historians really started thinking about gender in history in the 1960s and 1970s, gender study was pretty slow to catch on in Civil War scholarship for a couple reasons. First, it seemed like gender really only applied to women. And for a lot of Civil War historians, women are sort of peripheral to the quote unquote real stuff. I mean, that's kind of how I thought for a long time. And second, manhood was not necessarily considered an important way of thinking about war. But, as is probably obvious to all of you listening, masculinity is critically important to understanding warfare. Take, for instance, a major question in the field of Civil War era studies. What made men enlist? There are many books that have tried to figure this out, many historians who have tried to figure this out. Were some men just motivated by the chance to make a buck and be fed three times a day? Did some men feel duty-bound as citizens to serve their nation? Did some men feel like they needed to protect their dependents? Well, all of those questions are actually gender questions, right? The need to be productive and make a paycheck is linked to ideas about masculinity. The feeling that real men serve their country through military service is an extension of our ideas about what it means to be a man. And of course, The desire or the pressure to protect dependence is a central tenet of American masculinity, particularly in the 19th century. It was Leanne Weitz who argued in her path-breaking 1995 book, The Civil War as a Crisis in Gender, that men have been assumed to occupy a gendered view from nowhere, where the assumption is that they aren't affected or shaped in any way by the ideas or expectations of gender. But men do have a gender. And so by extension, as historians, we have to try to understand manhood if we want to understand whatever field we study. In my case, as in Leanne White's, you know, the Civil War. So let's start even before the war. In order to understand how men reacted when war broke out in 1861, we have to think about what the expectations of manhood were well before the war began. While ideas about masculinity are ever-changing, a few concepts have been central to manhood from America's earliest days, though their interpretations and meanings might change over time, as we'll get to later. For instance, it's almost always been important that men are the heads of their households. Men were endowed by God, most early Americans believed, to be the authority over their wives, children, and other dependents. This was influenced by Puritan religious beliefs, of course. They took the book of Genesis literally when it wrote that God had instructed Eve, quote, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee, end quote. Early Americans believed that God had constructed the world to have a certain order to it. And a central part of that order was that men were designed to be the authority figures. To be a head of household wasn't necessarily just to be the king of the family. 
Men were to be patriarchs. This meant being the family's representative in public affairs, protecting and increasing the family's name and legacy, and generally ensuring that the members of his family were good, upstanding people. This is something you've talked about before, right? In mm-hmm. in, in in England. Yeah, for sure. And it, this sounds all very familiar, and it comes out of most, like, Protestant Reformation scholarship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is when this kind of became important. And I'll actually talk about it in my impotence episode Excellent. as well a little bit. Yeah. I thought you would appreciate this 18th, yes, you know, 17th and 18th century stuff. Yes, here. I do. <laughs> that you deign to go back so well, far. Well, I'm acknowledging the long roots <laughs> of 19th century stuff. Um, according to historian E. Anthony Rotundo, quote, to have a household in some was to anchor the status system, preserve the political order, provide a model of government, sustain piety, ensure productive activity, and maintain the economic support of one's dependents, end quote. Part of being a patriarch was duty, another buzzword for us in this episode. Being a good patriarch meant that you had duties that you were beholden to. It was your duty as a father and husband to ensure your family was taken care of. During the 18th century, duty also meant submission. Of course, this was also linked to Christianity. Men were ultimately to submit to God in all things. This translated to the social order on earth as well. Sometimes, in order to perform your duty, you needed to know your place in society and submit to men who had higher status. But gradually, over the mid-18th century, and rather dramatically during the 1770s, this idea of submission changed. During the Revolutionary Era, when colonial men took the brash step of attempting to break from the British Empire, submission came to mean willingly cowering before the unjust power of a monarch. Submission, in this sense, came to mean abdicating your duty. Take, for instance, no less a document than the Declaration of Independence, which reads, quote, The king has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. To be manly in this estimation meant defying authority, which is a total shift from earlier ideas of American manhood. I thought you were going to be like, that's wrong. <laughs> Whenever I talk about the 18th no. century, I'm like, oh, no. I mean, the 1770s, it probably changed even more during the 1780s is probably more accurate because the 70s stuff hadn't really that's true. gotten I, going yet. That's probably but true because I'm thinking I know 1776. What you mean. I mean, right? I know what you but mean. Yes, you're yeah. right. Seven, let's say 17. 1770, 1780. The last 30 years. You know, the, the, the last third of the 18th century. Who knows? April gets so mad when I said, didn't you get mad when I said last, middle third? The middle third. Yeah. It's like, what does that even mean? If you mean? divided the century into thirds, the middle one. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> okay, whatever. So the last third, let's say. Yeah, okay, sure. So unsurprisingly, the revolution changed a number of things about American manhood. An example that we used in Sarah's episode about suits was clothing, specifically George Washington's clothing. I also talk about George Washington's penis in my impotence. Oh, episode. I'm so excited. <laughs> You're so excited. George so, Washington's um, penis. Ameri- oh, wait, because his... He was yeah, impotent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I'm talking about him in my episode about impotence because yeah, yeah, yeah. he was impotent. He had, um, well, he was sick, right? And something happened and it made him infertile, at least. That's not agreed upon. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's okay. That's okay. You're penises. just excited. I'm really excited about penises. I know. So, um, all right. So, yeah. So, George Washington's clothing, we talked about this in the suit yes. episode. Um, right. 
American manhood always rejected clothing that was particularly frou-frou. So elaborate or fancy clothing was considered effeminate, right? Foppish. Mm -hmm. But before the revolution, the colonial consumerist society still meant that richer clothing indicated masculine status, especially because English men used rich fabrics and ornaments to demonstrate their wealth. And just to interrupt here for one second, this is much more complicated than we're making it sound here. And we go into this in great depth in that Suits episode because what what was considered frou-frou and effeminate changes constantly. So, like, what we would look at and think, like, oh, my God, that's so froofy mm-hmm. um, in, like, 1680 was, like, that was the most masculine thing that you could wear. Right. So it it shifts and change. So So... And also there was a, a time when Americans, even though they could think of themselves as being having been very practical dressers, right. there was a time when um, Americans were even more likely to wear kind of frou-frou-y clothes exactly. because they're trying to be as British as possible. Right. And Brits would come to the colonies and be like, who do these they people think ridiculous. they are? Like, right. what's going on? Yeah. Right? So there's that situation. But I think the important point is that being frou-frou-y, that was... That was an insult because it injured masculinity. So, exactly. So people were calling each other that as an insult, and both sides were doing it. Right. Like, you know, the Amer- American colonists and then the British were both flinging these, this insult right. at each other, right. right? However, all of that fancy clothing uh, had to be imported from England. Mm-hmm. So, and as you said, it, it's very closely linked to Britishness right. in general. Yeah. Yep. And and Frenchness too. And mm-hmm. the English were kind of copying the French. And then they're, right. you know, so there's mm-hmm. this, it's kind of all, it's a game of telephone, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously importing things from England, this is not going to be cool during the revolution, right? right? It's not going to fly. Instead, men like George Washington began to indicate their new American manhood by wearing homespun cloth in sober colors. So wearing a plain but well-constructed black suit was now the indication of ideal manhood. And once again, I feel like we just keep interrupting ourselves. But um, this happened also like after the Protestant Reformation you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to indicate that you were a good Protestant, a good sober person, you would want to just wear just black. Mm-hmm. And, like, you see that with... So you think with, about the, what the Puritans, that, like, right. stereotypical pilgrim outfit. Right, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and Puritans were English. So in England, during the interregnum, um, you know, Puritans, that's what they were wearing, very sober clothes. Right. And this, um, I should say, this plain homespun black suit... Um, was what George Washington became very famous for wearing. Um, And we shouldn't think about that as being, like, shabby. Like, he's not wearing shabby or, like, poor clothing. He's wearing the very best possible American homespun, right? Like, it's still expensive. Right. But it's this new kind of more sober... Now it becomes kind of the pinnacle of masculine um, fashion. Right. And it's kind of like more moral, like a more ethical um, clothing choice. Right. Right. So um, just ask John Adams, right, who was pilloried for wearing fancy clothes in Congress when he was vice president. Mm -hmm. The clothes, people thought, were an indication that he was an effet monarchist. This has so much to do with the French Revolution, and (laughs) I'll, I'll get to that in my impotence episode. Then again, people also raised concerns about Thomas Jefferson because his clothes weren't quite fancy enough. 
Um, you know, it's hard to find a sweet spot. Right. The sweet this, spot was right? George Washington. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they wanted everyone to look like and act like George Washington. Thomas Jefferson cracks me up because he has such fine taste, right? Right. In terms of, like, French wines and all of the fanciest books and, like, all of that stuff. And spent money that he didn't have, like... It was nothing, right? But he was like, eh, I don't give a he shit was about a my slob. clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people were like, they'd see him and they'd be like, that is not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the revolution also provided the spark of another component of manhood, one that would grow steadily throughout the first half of the 19th century. The idea of the self-made man. Independence now meant that men, and we do mean men here, because despite Abigail Adams' plea to remember the ladies, no ladies were remembered at all and were not involved. (laughs) Um, But independence now meant that men had to build a brand new nation all on their own. Just like the nation had to be self-made, men as individuals would have to make themselves. Gone was the old idea that God had created a particular order to society. Now, as demonstrated by the revolution, men could insist on alternate futures through hard work and maybe through a healthy dose of bravado. We'll come back to that later on. Instead of thinking of themselves as just one part of a larger unit anchored by their families and their status, right? This kind of thinking about their families as these long legacies and they're just one part in this longer story. um, Men now thought of themselves as individuals. And while this idea was sparked by the revolution, it didn't reach its fullest form until a few decades into the 19th century with the huge economic shift known as the market revolution. As production moved from the household to factories during the 1820s to the 40s or so, men faced even more pressure to be self-made for a number of reasons. First, men couldn't rely on inheriting a trade from their fathers anymore and instead had to rely on their own ambition to help them find a career unmoored from family legacies. Second, the new economy meant that men had to go out and compete for jobs, which meant sizing themselves up against other men. They would need to work hard to distinguish themselves, but also to eliminate the competition. And third, it meant that for many men, the work they were doing on a day-to-day basis made them decidedly not independent. On the contrary, it made them submissive dependents. Before the market revolution, many men were in control of their working conditions, their hours, and their bodies. Moreover, they often did work that was highly skilled. Afterwards, however, they had to be at work at a certain time, punch the clock, report to supervisors, accept whatever wages their employers set, and perform de-skilled, often menial tasks. Take shoemaking, for example. Before the market revolution, a man might run or work in a small cobbler shop. He would have apprenticed for years with a skilled cobbler to develop his trade and then opened up shop himself. He crafted shoes from scratch, working at his own pace and performing each part of the process from preparing the leather to polishing them up for sale. He might even have some apprentices himself, doing his patriarchal duty to teach the next generation of cobblers. 
whatever profits that came went into his pockets to provide for his dependents. But during the market revolution, a factory would take over shoe production. Now, a man in the shoemaking trade wouldn't apprentice to learn how to make shoes. In fact, he wouldn't even make shoes. Instead, he would go to work in the factory for a set number of hours where he would just stamp out the soles of shoes or just punch the holes for the laces for hours. And in the end, the profits didn't go to him. They went to the factory owner who would then pay him whatever wage he thought was reasonable. The individuality, skill, and pride were more or less stripped from their work. Now, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it shows in broad strokes how this economic shift totally upended ideas about masculinity. If men could no longer distinguish themselves as a respectable cobbler, how would they derive their sense of manhood now? The market revolution forced men to figure out new ways to craft and assert their masculinity. My favorite example of this is a guy named Sam Patch. Sam Patch was a mule spinner in a textile factory in Patterson, New Jersey, meaning that he operated a machine that was used to spin cotton or wool into thread. It was called a mule spinner, and so the people that worked at them were also called mule spinners. It was manual labor that didn't require massive amounts of technical skill, but it also wasn't an easy job, and men came to take pride in their work. Mostly, that pride came from the physical prowess that it took to be a mule spinner, and mule spinners developed ways to show off that physicality um, as a way to show off their manhood. They did this by falls jumping, which is exactly what it sounds like, leaping off of waterfalls. It was a way of proving that they were strong, skilled, and daring. And I think one of the most important elements of falls jumping was that it also asserted a man's ownership over his own body. Sure, he might work for someone else, he might punch a clock, he might not have a real trade, but at least he had control over himself. And if that meant flinging himself off of waterfalls to prove it, so be it. I mean, Sam Patch jumps off of the Passaic Falls in New Jersey, he jumps off of Niagara Falls many times, which just blows my mind because Niagara Falls, if you've never been, come visit us and go to Niagara Falls. It is insane. I mean, it's the idea of jumping off of it gives me panic attacks. Like I can't, I have a hard time visiting Niagara Falls, Um, but he did it many times and survived And then he died jumping off of the Genesee Falls in Rochester, which are much less exciting than the Niagara Falls. Anyway, I'm getting away from my point here. Um, Now, if anything, I think flinging yourself off of waterfalls in order to prove your masculinity is kind of the definition of toxic masculinity, right? (laughs) Being willing to die a horrible, wet death in Niagara Falls is... In order to prove that you've got a, you know, big schlong is toxic masculinity. Anyway, there's so much more to Sam Patch's story that, you know, I would just love to talk about right now. But I will restrain myself. Uh, So instead, I will tell you to run to your library or to your bookstore and pick up Paul Johnson's Sam Patch, the famous jumper, and read it. You will not be sad that you did. In fact, exerting control over your own body became a critical component of 19th century masculinity. 
If nothing else, men could control their bodies. Working-class men like Sam Patch often use physicality to demonstrate their masculinity. While Sam and other factory workers used falls jumping to prove their manhood, in the antebellum South, lower-class men took part in what historian Elliot Gorn calls backwoods brawling, which was like boxing, but with no rules. Well, technically, there was one rule, and that was no weapons. Right. Okay. So it's like MMA, kind of, right? So, MMA, uh, there's no rules, right? I don't know. Okay. Well, I, don't, I shouldn't talk about things I don't know about. But. <laughs> um, so uh, other than that, there, you know, this was no holes barred fighting, right? So the fight didn't end when your opponent fell or lost consciousness, but you had to utterly savage him. In fact, inflicting lasting damage was the goal. The more obvious a mark you left on your opponent, the better. The sport was sometimes just referred to as gouging, a name that came from the signature move of using long, sharp thumbnails to gouge out an opponent's (laughs) eye. Nice. So great. Um, a story about Davy Crockett, the famed backwoodsman, illustrates this point. Describing one brawl he was in, uh, Crockett recalled that, quote, I kept my thumb in his eye and was just going to give it a twist and bring the peeper out, <laughs> like taking up a gooseberry in a spoon, end quote. I, that's really great. <laughs> I want to give that, like, a Wisconsin accent so bad. Like, it just there's something about it that just sounds a like a gooseberry Um, taking up a gooseberry and a spoon. (laughs) Um, So he wasn't able to complete the task, though, because someone stopped him just before he could claim his gooey prize. (laughs) Gouging became embedded in backcountry lore, where brawls took on ridiculous dimensions. One legend about a brawl between two boatmen from Mississippi included details such as the combatants wearing skin ripped from each other's faces. After the younger fighter killed the older, um, after he gouged out his eye, Mm -hmm. he swam to an island and yelled back to shore, Roo, roo, I can lick a steamboat. My fingernails is related to a sawmill on my mother's side, and my daddy was a double-breasted catamount. I wear a hoop skirt for a neck handkerchief, and the brass buttons on my coat have been all boiled in poison. (laughs) What? (laughs) End quote, obviously. <laughs> Isn't you know, that great? I can lick like, a steamboat. <laughs> it's like neener, 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 but yeah, like exactly. much but I more. I really like that he like swam to an island and then like screamed this back across the river at I them. know. I know. It's very. <laughs> so great. Juvenile. Kind yes. Of. <laughs> so uh, what on earth was all that about, right? Well, Gorn argues that the market shift affected southern backwoods men also. But instead of going to work in factories like those men in the cities, these men had to work hard in manual labor in order to make cash. In many cases, men did work such as working on river barges, hunting, or moving herds of livestock, which took them away from their families for long periods and placed them in homosocial settings instead. Just like the urban marketplace, competition for these very physically demanding jobs was stiff. Gorn describes gouging culture this way, quote, on the margins of a booming, modernizing society, they shared an intensely communal yet fiercely competitive way of life. Thus, where work was least rationalized and specialized, domesticity the weakest, legal institutions primitive, and the market economy feeble, rough and tumble fighting found fertile soil. 
Gouging, then, was a way to assert your dominance over other men and to demonstrate your ultimate control over your own body. Fighting was popular in antebellum Southern society in general, but the landed gentry initially gravitated more towards boxing, which seemed more genteel. Boxing had strict rules, and it ended when your opponent hit the mat. And often, rich, young Southern men hired boxing instructors to come teach them how to fight. This reminds me of, if you've seen the show Poldark, how George Warlegan at the beginning, uh, I think it's like in season one and season two, George Warlegan hires a boxing instructor because he like feels like he needs to have like a tougher aspect of his masculinity. He's George is like a very wealthy he comes from new money basically he's like very very wealthy and he really wants to be a gentleman but he also is afraid that that gentlemanliness is not like rough enough or like do you know what i mean like it's not Mm -hmm. doesn't have that kind of like rougher edge and of course he's juxtaposed with ross poldark who was just like roughness roughness personified and just like Oh, I got to stop talking about yeah. it because it gets me all hot and bothered. But Rough George sexiness. is like, if you watch the show, George is a really good example of what I'm talking about. Like, bo- like training to box in this kind of almost absurdly um, genteel way, right? Like they're boxing in like the parlor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's not actually fighting anyone. It's got like a, a an instructor there, right? But anyway... You know, even then, boxing soon gave way to an even more genteel and even more highly regulated form of exerting your masculine dominance, dueling. Of course, as everyone now knows because of the musical Hamilton, dueling was commonplace in the United States during the late 18th and early 19th century. And I mean, you know, when I say commonplace, I mean, it was something that happened north and south. Um, But... Gradually, it became a uniquely Southern phenomenon as the 19th century wore on. Like gouging, dueling was a way that men could demonstrate their ownership over their own and over other men's bodies. I think that we should reserve the intricacies of dueling to its own episode. I think that some of our listeners might enjoy an episode about dueling, so I'm just going to plant that seed right now. (laughs) Um, But I think it's important to draw this comparison between gouging and dueling And especially to highlight the fact that both upper class and lower class men used violence and bodily control as ways to assert their manhood. But Southern masculinity wasn't all dueling and bloodshed. Historian Stephen Barry has written about a different kind of Southern manhood that he describes with the French word éclat. Barry explains éclat like this. Quote, wary of ambition, disdainful of vanity, and suspicious of accumulated power, Southerners like their leading men not to make money, but to be somehow affluent, not to work, but be somehow accomplished, not to give orders, but to be somehow followed, end quote. In a way, Southern masculinity retained the patriarchal component that Northern manhood had since jettisoned. But Southern men did preside over large households like the patriarchs of old. Stephanie McCurry has called these very wealthy slavers masters of small worlds because they were masters of everything within their domain, including, of course, their slaves, but also their wives and children. Stephen Berry contends that many Southern men were hugely ambitious and strove for greatness. After all, they were masters, and they were not content to work doing the menial labor they believed Northerners settled for. No Southern man with a claw was going to be satisfied working as a clerk or a mechanic. 
Southern men were romantics and aristocrats, not workers. For example, Jeb Stewart, um, who we'll come back to later on, he's a a very famous Confederate cavalry officer, uh, worried about what kind of career he was cut out for as he prepared to graduate from West Point in 1853. He couldn't afford land, so he couldn't be a planter, but he chafed at the idea of what he called the hireling professions, uh, which he saw as law, medicine, engineering, and arms. Um, And just to pause here, I think it's really interesting that like law, medicine, engineering, at least those three, we think of as very prestigious um, careers now, but for for a Southern man with this eclat, right, that was like work a day Joe Schmo sort of stuff. He was like aspiring to something much more greater and much more glorious than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just and, kind of very foreign to us now. Well, a lot of that comes from this old idea of um, like gentry. Like yes, old, it's a very aristocratic right. way of thinking. So they're mm-hmm. kind of like basically what makes you aristocratic, what makes you um, gentry, what makes you someone important is that you don't have to work. Right. And it doesn't even matter if the work is lawyering. Like, the whole point right. is that you don't have to work and you, you know, spend your time in other pursuits like exactly. whatever, right. boxing right. <laughs> or whatever. Right. And, of course, he includes hireling. He includes the army in with the hireling professions as well, which maybe um, I'm not sure we exactly share that same idea today. Um, but certainly in the 19th century, joining the army was not something that was considered um even like a kind of patriotic thing. It was sort of something that you did if you didn't have any other options, Um, even for officers. Eventually, Jeb Stewart did declare that a career in the army at least held the possibility of, quote, the pride and pomp and circumstance of glorious war, right? If he had to join the army, then at the very least, he could hope that he would have to fight in some like war and that would give him the chance, the chance to achieve this like greater glory. Right. Right. Even if he had to just kind of like do it day to day and it would be boring and kind of slavish in between someday he could die in a blaze of gunfire. Right. Another young man named John Lincoln found himself depressed as he thought about graduating from college. Many Southerners bought into the aristocratic notion that since many of the founding fathers happened to be Southern, there was something uniquely excellent about Southern men that set them up for a life of greatness. Lincoln wrote, quote, I dwelt in golden castles of a delusive future, my mind more enlarged by great and noble views of life. Yet, strange as it might seem, the vividness of my conception of the responsibilities of life made me wish to shun them. He wanted to be a George Washington, but the mundanity of the work that would that would require to get to be a George Washington was discouraging. Right. He's too fancy for that. Right. (laughs) Before we move on to the north, we need to be very clear that the bodily control that was so important in the south was only available to certain men. Black enslaved men were utterly excluded from the ability to control their own bodies because their bodies did not belong to them. Part of the nature of dueling among the white Southern elite was the public demonstration that your body was yours to do with as you pleased, even if it meant standing still while another man shot at you. This was also lower class men's right, either to fling themselves off waterfalls or to gouge out each other's eyes. But this right was explicitly denied to black men, who were required to submit to physical punishment without fighting back, as a white man from any social class would be expected to do. 
It's no mistake that according to the Code Duello, the guidebook for dueling, the punishment reserved for men who were considered beneath you was whipping or caning. To whip or cane someone was to reduce them to the status of a slave. This is also why, for many white men, disability or disfigurement was synonymous with slavery. The fact that black men did not control what happened to their own bodies will become super important later on, but more on that later. So what were northern men doing while southern men were dueling and gouging each other's eyeballs out? Well, we know that working class men like Sam Patch were finding other interesting ways of controlling their bodies, and it's not as though northern men were averse to violence or rough behavior entirely. Lower or working class men in the north, especially immigrants from Ireland and Germany, were often trapped in the submissive jobs required by the market. And so they demonstrated their independence by hardworking and carousing, and fistfighting was certainly part of that. There was also certainly a culture of prize fighting in the North before the Civil War, and immigrant Germans brought their culture of gymnasiums with them to the United States. But just as lower and upper class Southerners split over their preferred kinds of violent outbursts, so too did Northern men. While lower class men believed that hard drinking, hanging out in taverns, and getting into brawls was the height of manliness, middle and upper class Northern men could not disagree more. For them, masculinity was about a different kind of self-control. In their case, it meant controlling the base, passionate impulses that made you want to do ungentlemanly things like fight and drink. Keep in mind that around the same time as the market revolution in the United States, uh, there was a huge wave of religious revival called the Second Great Awakening, which swept across the entire nation but found a particular foothold in the North. With this revival came a new desire for perfectionism. In a nutshell, many Protestant Christians came to believe during the Second Great Awakening that if humans could perfect the earth, by which I mean kind of ridding it of all sin, they could bring about the second coming of Christ, followed by, or maybe preceded by, there was some disagreement, a millennium of peace. Therefore, for many genteel northerners, masculinity was actually marked by your ability to restrain yourself from all those sinful, unruly activities. This is one reason boxing became controversial in the North. It seemed to encourage the wrong impulses. Most genteel northern men believed that some exercise was healthy, and in a society where more and more men were working white-collar desk jobs even necessary— but it had to be done in proper ways. Sylvester Graham, namesake of the delicious graham cracker, although his graham crackers were not nearly as good as ours. No, (laughs) they were were designed to do one thing. Yeah, make (laughs) you poop. Make you poop. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so Sylvester Graham, he was also an anti-masturbation crusader, right? So he had a lot to say about exercise. In one book of Graham's writings, he wrote that, quote, a certain amount of exercise or labor is essential to the welfare of man as food or air, end quote. Another such pithy statement was, quote, if a man takes too little exercise, he suffers. If exercise be excessive, he suffers, end quote. He believed that walking was fabulous, even when paired with bouts of running and leaping, but believed that horseback <laughs> he literally <laughs> said leaping. <laughs> running, he may leap. Can you just, that's very manly, just walking leaping. and then leaping suddenly. <laughs> right. uh, but he believed that horseback riding was the ideal form of exercise. In describing the beneficial effects of, of horseback riding for people who had tuberculosis, he said, quote, invalids too feeble to mount, 
by riding a short distance the first time and increasing the length daily, have become able. In the course of two weeks, to ride 20 miles without stopping and to feel more vigorous at the end. So he's saying even people who were unable to even get on a horse, mm-hmm. once they did and they kind of just slowly built up their their habit, they became so much more strong. Which makes sense because it takes so much core strength, right? I, like, as someone whose main form of exercise is horseback riding, <laughs> can I just say that, like, riding 20 miles, and of course, that's something that was much more common in the 19th century than it is now, but, like... I'm sore just thinking about it. <laughs> right. Like, that's, I mean, right. Just you're because you're holding of all of your muscles tight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, then again, Graham also believed that the regular action of the bowels was of the utmost importance to health. <laughs> right. All of these genteel forms of exercise would result in healthy, moral, regularly pooping middle class men. Importantly, it would also result in the right kind of body for a middle class man. While a genteel man must be able to move with agility, he really should not be muscle-bound, right? Like, like you mean, like, the Hulk, like, barely yes, walk, right. right? Like, Captain America, what's his name? I mean, that kind of, like, the... super, super muscly thing was not attractive for middle-class men. Like, yeah. Right. That was considered... Because you're not agile enough. Not like, even that. It was, it was associated with lower-class people who did manual labor. Ah, okay. That's kind of hot. <laughs> in fact, one magazine worried that boxing would result in brute bulk and monstrous arms and shoulders. Heavy muscles and big arms might be attractive to us now. Yeah. <laughs> but they were yeah. <laughs> uh, but they were considered low class and boorish in the mid-19th century. We alluded to this in the suits episode too. Um, Mid nineteenth century suits had sloping shoulders, wide breasts, and small waists, emphasizing curves and slopes, not sharp lines and musculature. Right. Mm-hmm. So large, muscly bodies were associated with men who worked hard for a living, and not refined middle and upper class elites who would have like used their brain right, more. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think that's an important distinction that the. They weren't expected to just sit around, you know, on overstuffed chairs all day and, like, sip tea and read books. Like, they they should exercise. They should take in fresh air, right? But, like, walking was the way they should do that. Or, or going out for a ride or something like that. Like, walking was, like, huge in the 19th century. Like, people were... There was competitive walking, but that's a different thing. But, like... There's currently competitive walking. <laughs> okay. Do you, have you seen the speed walking in the Olympics? Yes, yeah. yeah, and they had they had things like that in the 19th century. Um, but like, if you read any books from the 19th century, people are always going out on like long contemplative walks, right? Like walking was seen as incredibly salutary. Walk like those kinds of um, exercises, like walking and you know horseback riding, were not going to give you these big lower class like beefy bodies. Like that's not what you wanted. You wanted mm-hmm. to be. You wanted to emphasize that you were healthy but still middle class or upper class. So take all of these competing ideas about masculinity and then throw all of these dudes into two armies, put a lot of weapons in their hands, and then tell me gender has nothing to do with the war, right? Uh, All of these different ideas about masculinity were, of course, reflected in the war itself. For instance, uh, the very knightly Confederate cavalry commander, Jeb Stuart, who we last talked about when he was considering a life in the army after graduation from West Point, um, he declared, quote, 
All I ask of fate is that I may be killed leading a cavalry charge. Uh, this seemingly simple request of fate was actually a manifestation of Southern masculinity, right? After all, to stand up in a duel is kind of like putting yourself at the front of a cavalry charge. You're putting your body and your life on the line, risking death itself to prove your honorable manhood. He was also reflecting that idea of eclat by confessing his desire to die, not just a dignified, but a glorious death, like a character in one of the tremendously popular Sir Walter Scott novels. I think it's Mark Twain makes some kind of quip after the war that like, Sir Walter Scott is actually responsible for the war because so many Southern men read Sir Walter Scott adventure novels and like wanted to like be glorious in battle. Yeah, exactly. Another example of this dashing, brash Southern manhood in wartime was Lawrence Kitt, a wealthy planter and fire eater from South Carolina who was known for his violent antics in Congress. For example, In 1858, Kit called Pennsylvania Congressman Galusha Grow a, quote, black Republican puppy. Calling someone a black Republican puppy was a huge insult because puppies are small, groveling. They're not independent. They're, you know, they're embarrassing. Um, And of course, a black Republican is because the Republican Party was associated with at least controlling the spread of slavery, if not ending it. Mm-hmm. Grow shot back. No Negro driver shall crack his whip over me. Kit literally went for Grow's throat, which resulted in a 50-man melee on the floor of the house. Just two years earlier, Kit had helped Preston Brooks beat the ever-living tar out of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner by holding back other senators from stopping the brutal caning. Kit styled himself as a visionary. He thought of American history and politics as one grand epic poem full of heroes and villains. He knew who the heroes were, the brave, strong men like him and Brooks, and he knew who the villains were, weak, ineffectual northern men like Sumner and Grow. He longed for the day when northern men would try to overcome the South. They would be met with overwhelming southern force, and he said, quote, the city would float with blood. Kit got what he wanted and more. At the Battle of Cold Harbor in 1864, the brigade that Kit was leading broke, with many of his men hiding behind trees while they were supposed to be charging at a small number of dismounted Union cavalry. Exposed on his horse, Kit was shot in the gut and died. So... He got what he wanted. He got what he wanted, Kit. And for what it's worth, Jeb Stewart also got what he wanted and was shot by a Michigan trooper who recognized Stewart's distinctive and very flashy cape and hat. His hat had like this giant feather sticking out of it so you could recognize him immediately. Um, Recognized him because of his clothing during the Battle of Yellow Tavern and shot him and he died a few hours later. Apparently, and this could be apocryphal, I don't know. Apparently, some of his last words were to ask whether his face still looked okay. <laughs> Do I still look handsome? But, you know, that that was a, that kind of brashness in clothing um, was very common during the Civil War. More common for Southern officers, especially, you know, because officers were expected to be mounted mm-hmm. during battle. And there's some disagreement over that. But, um so to make yourself even more visible by wearing something very bright, I mean, we'll have another example of that in a minute, but 
that was a way of of saying like I don't care. Do it like I'm I'm so brave. Right, like I'm, I'm gonna... here for you. Exactly. Like, I'm here right. for you to to come at me. Right. Kind of thing. And it's not just Southerners. Although Southerners do it more. Um, George Custer, for instance, is very famous for wearing like he instead of wearing like the normal like Union shirt and coat, he wore this like bright red like scarlet shirt <laughs> with like a big kind of like neckerchief thing, and it was all about like showing off how brave you were by making yourself even more flashy. Northern men, by contrast, placed emphasis on restraint. Samuel Cormany, an officer in the 16th Pennsylvania Cavalry, wrote in his diary that his goal was, quote, to control myself all around and in all cases, always correct and erect and immovable. He strove to, quote, control my lower, my animal self. So this didn't mean that Cormany never experienced emotions. In fact, he talked about weeping often in his diary, especially after his wife was recovered from a difficult childbirth. It was when that emotionality was uncontrolled that he felt discomfort. Another time, Cormany wrote, quote, I feel so completely unmanned that I have no control of my feelings, end quote. Soldiers often use that term, unmanned. In Cormany's writing, he used it to describe any moment when he lost his restraint or control of himself, whether in terms of his emotions or at other times in terms of heavy drinking. Control was also critical in battle, when a man not only risked his life, but his honor if he lacked manly resolve. George Whitman, Walt Whitman's brother, wrote to his mother about undergoing a Confederate attack with his unit, the 51st New York, saying, quote, I was calm and cool during the whole affair as I am at any time, end quote. As he thought about facing another battle, another soldier described his feelings as, quote, cool dread, not fear. When an officer was cool in battle, it earned him the adoration of his men. To use the parlance of the era, cool. Why, what do you say, parlance? (laughs) Whatever concubinage. To use the parlance of the era, coolness was the opposite of being unmanned. We do need to note that one's behavior under fire was a universal concern for men, both Union and Confederate. For some in the Confederate Army, the pressure to perform well under fire became so intense that soldiers took their own lives rather than risk dying ignobly, and soldiers in all armies worried about being caught in a moment of panic. So while there are differences between regional conceptions of manhood, they cannot be completely separated. I just have to interrupt our flow here for a second to tell you a quick story. So you you uh, just talked about that um, Officer Samuel Cormany. And Cormany wrote, like, he was a prolific diarist during the war. So we have, like, lots and lots and lots of his writings in his diary. But we also have his wife's diary and, like, letters between them and everything. So it's, like, a very rich um, source material there. And so they've been used a lot. And one of the places that they were used is in the book Intimate Matters by Joanne Freeman and John D'Amelio, which is a famous kind of path-breaking history of, of sex and sexuality in the United States. And the reason why Samuel Cormany's diary and letters and all that are used in that is because he had a lot of sex with prostitutes while he was in the army, but he also loved his wife back at home who, you know, had struggles with health and all this stuff. And there's this very dramatic moment where he comes home and I think it's at the end of the war and has to like, he, he feels compelled because of his, like, he, he's had, like, kind of, like, a religious conversion, which is very convenient, right? He feels compelled to, like, 
bare his soul to his wife thinking like, oh, she's going to be very proud of me because it's this Christian thing that I've done. Like I've had this Christian awakening and I'm coming clean and she's going to be glad. And she's not glad (laughs) because he's like, yo, wife, I banged a lot of prostitutes while I was away from you. Um, but you should forgive me because Jesus, like his wife's not going to be real excited about that. So where I'm going with this is that I was once asked to write a short blog post for the National Museum of Civil War Medicine about prostitution during the war, because it was like a tie in with the show Mercy Street when that was on PBS a while ago. And I wrote about this Cormany situation. And I I haven't done research in the Cormany letters or diaries, but I read the Intimate Matters book, right? And so I cited it to Intimate Matters because they made that argument. They interpreted those sources in that way. And they are very fancy historians, right? Yep, yep. And this book's been out for a long time. Well, the museum gets a very angry email from a man who is claims to be the married to a uh, descendant of the Cormonese and that we are slandering her ancestors by pointing out the historical fact that he had sex with prostitutes and that he's going to sue the museum and he wants the thing taken down. And it was this huge problem. Like the museum ended up having, they did take the blog post down and I, but I kept saying, listen, there's, first of all, you shouldn't take this blog post down, right? Right. But secondly, I didn't, I, this is not my interpretation. Like, I'm not the one who, like, pieced all these things together and decided he was having sex with prostitutes. It's been written in this book that came out in, like, 1985. Right. Like, it was just absolutely amazing to me. Not anyway. to mention, he himself recorded that he yes. had sex with prostitutes. And like I don't and know. And then he told his wife about it. Maybe he used oblique language, right? Like maybe Well don't they always they I mean do. that's like yes. they're everybody they're always using, It's the nineteenth century. Yeah, right. they just use euphemisms to exactly. talk about whatever's going on. It wouldn't be crazy to think that he had sex with prostitutes. Not at all. That was very typical. Right. So Absolutely. And if if it was about something else then why is why are they having this marital crisis in 1865 talking about like his wife is like devastated right right what would that be about it's like, definitely not like masturbation or something no. it's not like he's like oh i masturbated and then she's like, like doubting her entire marriage right, right. no, no it's ridiculous right. and so that's i just have to share that that Cormany story because he is a fascinating person and um that see people's sexual and this comes up in my in my will come up in my impotence episode get it come up <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's so many of those in my episode but anyway no it, because people like still have a stake in this yes. like like historians are still arguing about who was impotent and who wasn't right. and it's the same like historians are still it's arguing about who was sexually yeah. um virtuous and who wasn't like that's i'll bring this up in our other um in your episode i don't want to kind of talk about it right now but um that's exactly some of the pushback that i've gotten about writing about chamberlain is because i'm i'm talking about how how could someone so honorable and masculine and such a war hero be impotent like you know how is that well it's very it's happens to everyone because impotence doesn't say anything about you as a person at like as a person and it's it's common right right? anyway but yeah i think it's interesting how you know even 
for people who are talking about people who weren't famous, just like their ancestors. They have such a stake in what their ancestors did or didn't do that this guy was, you know, was actually threatening to sue this National Museum over some paltry, tiny blog post that I wrote for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's interesting. So now hopefully he doesn't listen to this episode and, and try to sue us. Again, I hope he but... does. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> anyway, anyway, okay, coming back around here. Lorian Foote has written a wonderful book about the masculine dynamic in the Union Army, in which she makes a really important argument that we need to remember that there were competing ideas about manhood within the Union Army. So it's not just kind of the differences between North and South, right? There are differences inside each army as well. And her book is specifically about the Union Army. While lower class men, those who tended towards drinking and fighting, filled the rank and file, upper class men, who prized restraint and gentility, made up the officer corps. This was bound to cause conflict. Soldiers and officers struggled with one another, in part because they had competing ideas about what it meant to behave like a man and a soldier. Because officers, especially the very elite, such as the men um, in the Boston Brahmin regiments, which I mentioned you know, at the very top of the episode... Um, These officers often believed that their men were uncivilized boors, so they treated their soldiers with extreme discipline. They spanked, beat, and even shot their soldiers to ensure that they were obeyed. Enlisted men struggled with the strict discipline of life in the army because they believed that manhood meant independence, not submission. While some soldiers responded well to strict discipline, many more chafed at it, I I think understandably. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of men in the 20th Massachusetts, which, side note, was known as like the Brahmin Regiment. It was like it was called the Harvard Regiment. Uh, Many officers in the 20th were from the finest families in Boston, and almost all of them were Harvard men. So uh, hundreds of soldiers, enlisted men in the 20th Mass, actually felt so maltreated by their elite officers that they petitioned the governor, demanding that their newest second lieutenant be removed from command. They alleged that they had been, quote, subjected to a tyranny worse than African slavery, and that the officer was trying to, quote, destroy their manhood with cruel and humiliating punishments. For many citizen soldiers, it was difficult to square their belief that their manhood required their independence with the military demand that they submit to authority. The most successful officers were the ones who were able to command respect using a little bit of discipline and a lot of cool. Charles Russell Lowell, colonel of the 2nd Mass Cavalry, who he originally served in the 20th Mass, um, was always mounted in battle to demonstrate his cool before the men, and even took to wearing a bright red sash because he believed that it was, quote, good for the men to have him wear it. There was one group that had a great deal at stake when it came to wartime manhood, black soldiers. We've actually done an entire episode on Black Union soldiers, so we won't spend too much time on them now, but we definitely encourage you to go listen to our episode. What What's the title exactly? Black is it Union Soldiers. Black Union Soldiers. It was a history buffs episode. Black Union Soldiers. <laughs> Very creative episode <laughs> title. Um, so it's important to at least kind of highlight their experience here, too, because it, it's related, right? right? So for a long time, most historians thought about the war as a watershed opportunity for black men. 
most Americans doubted that black men were capable of being real men, right? The enslavement of many black men made the entire race, to many people's minds, the epitome of submission. You can't be manly if you're submitting to other people. Even though it's obviously forced right like you're not submitting because you love it right you're being you're being violently coerced into doing that but it's like tainted by the association with submission right this is why caning was so humiliating in the world of dueling um it reduced the man to the submissive position of the enslaved right i have a lot about that in my impotence episode as well excellent (laughs) um so If the role of citizen soldier was the pinnacle of American manhood, then surely taking up arms and donning Union blue was the way that black men would prove their manhood. This was important for black soldiers themselves who saw it as a period of transformation for their own psyches. When a Confederate soldier asked a black soldier just who he thought he was, the soldier responded, quote, when God made me, I wasn't much, but I is a man now, end quote. This perceived transformation was important for white onlookers, too. By proving their ability to kill and die just as well as white men, they proved to whites that they were worthy of emancipation and just maybe even civil rights. This interpretation was embraced by the first professional black historian, W.E.B. Du Bois, who famously wrote, quote, How extraordinary and what a tribute to ignorance and religious hypocrisy is the fact that in the minds of most people, even those of liberals, only murder makes men. The slave pleaded, he was humble, he protected the women of the South, and the world ignored him. The slave killed white men, and behold, he was a man, end quote. And I should interject here that W.E.B. Du Bois is being very acerbic in this statement, right? Like, he's not Mm -hmm. saying, like, yes, this is the way that black men became men was by serving in the army. He's saying, like, isn't it isn't it absurd that for white men uh, who were terrified of black men killing white men for centuries, mm-hmm. suddenly this is how they can earn their manhood. Right. It's like, like sarcasm. Is, it's exactly. like this is so it's very ironic. Yeah. yeah. But as Carol Emberton, Sarah's brilliant advisor, has argued, it wasn't quite that simple. Black men weren't just working to prove their manhood. They were working to prove their humanity. Moreover, she argues that it was more than just the act of taking up arms and marching into battle that transformed black men. After all, many black Union soldiers weren't used in combat at all, but in manual labor. Instead, their ability to be controlled and their ability to control themselves and respond to discipline was an indicator that they could be trusted in society. And of course, putting guns in the hands of black men, believed to be dangerous or dim-witted, was also a dicey prospect that needed to be handled very carefully. If black soldiers proved too adept at killing, they might not be safe for civil society. It gets even more complicated, of course, if you factor in just how like slavery service in the Union Army could be for black men. What with backbreaking labor, lower pay than whites, and even impressment, it wasn't as straightforward path to manhood as you might assume. There are a million more ways that manhood and the war intersected. Is it possible to think about the war itself as two competing sets of belief about manhood? For example, the individual tendency towards restraint could be correlated to the Union Army's general tendency towards restraint early in the war, when the Federal Army was under the command of George B. McClellan. McClellan famously refused to attack in battle after battle, often either letting the Confederate Army slip away from his usually overwhelming force, 
or allowing the Southern Army to make the first move, putting the Union Army at a disadvantage. Abraham Lincoln was confounded by McClellan's reluctance to attack the enemy, even writing to the general in 1862, quote, Once more, let me tell you, it is indispensable to you that you strike a blow. You must act. Later in the war, when the Union Army was led by Ulysses S. Grant, a general who had absolutely no sense of restraint about attacking, even if it meant taking on tremendous losses, civilians wrung their hands about Grant being a butcher. On the other hand, Southern generals were known for their military audaciousness. Stonewall Jackson's flanking attack at Chancellorsville is one example, but a more famous example might be Robert E. Lee's attack on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, known as Pickett's Charge. This massive attack was bold to the point of absurdity, which seems to be very squarely within Stephen Barry's idea of éclat. Were these military tactics reflective of two conflicting conceptions of masculinity? I'm not sure. (laughs) And I suspect that some of my fellow Civil War historians might shake their heads at this idea. Um, You know, but it's interesting to think about, right? It's it's um, there's there's something there. We might not want to push it quite that far, um, but I think that it's kind of worth considering. I could go on and on, but for your sake, dear listener, and (laughs) for Marissa's sake as well, I will restrain myself. Get it? (laughs) good one oh so clever there are other fascinating aspects of civil war manhood that we just don't have time for some thankfully we actually have touched on before like the absolutely wild and fascinating history of manhood among southern guerrilla fighters who scalped their enemies and decorated their horses bridles with gory skin along with ribbons from their lady friends and you can find more about those dashing and violent men in our civil war guerrillas episode Instead of tying things up nicely here at the end, instead, I want to leave you with a bunch of questions. What happened to all these ideas about masculinity when a soldier was wounded, sick, or disabled? When he couldn't control his body in the ways that men were supposed to, or when he couldn't restrain his emotions? What happened to those ideas about manly restraint when a soldier was in terrible pain? What happened to soldiers who couldn't fight because they were suffering from some kind of ailment? And how did all of this change, or maybe not change, when the war was over and things supposedly went back to quote-unquote normal? I mean, what do you do with men who should be controlled and restrained, but who have been practicing the art of killing one another for four years? Well, for answers to those questions, do I have the book for you? (laughs) (laughs) the end (laughs) all right so i don't really um, have any discussion points it's it's long enough i think and we discussed a lot throughout so i think yeah um so thank you for joining us today you should join my book no yeah Yeah. you should buy yes so uh please check out sarah hanley cousins um bodies in blue uh, disability in the Civil War North. Is that what it is? Masculinity and disability? Or is it just disability? No, it's just disability. Okay. Mm-hmm. Disability in the Civil War North, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get on Amazon. Mm-hmm. UGA oh. Press's website or, you know, like wherever. Or like at your library or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you can uh, follow us on Twitter at dig underscore history. Why can't I remember our Twitter? <laughs> I think so. I think we're dig underscore history like everywhere. No, it's dig underscore podcast. 
No, it's not. It's dig underscore history <laughs> at dig underscore history. And then um, our website, uh, you can find our show notes and transcripts for this episode at digpodcast.org. And you could, if you really wanted to, um, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash dig history. Um, or no, it's probably dig podcast. What is wrong with you? <laughs> I don't know. What are you talking about? Our, our Whatever. I already website? said our Patreon. So okay. um, if you'd like to join our uh, Facebook group, it's it's a little slow, especially in the summers, because I think we're all just, like, doing things. Um, and there's not too many we're of us. We're recreating. But, yeah, we're, we're recreating. But we're still posting, you know, every day or two mm-hmm. um, on whatever, on Mostly memes, um, funny things that happen to us. Right. <laughs> Pictures of... Funny onion articles. Yeah, just yeah. things like that. Um, it's called Dig History Pod Squad. You can just find us and uh, ask to join. And it usually takes me a while to see that people ask to join. So just be patient. Um, mm-hmm. And what? We should mention, too, that we have a swag shop. Yeah. If you are interested, we have... Um, Averill is constantly coming up with new designs based on episodes as they come out so actually right now as we are recording marissa has this beautiful tank top on with a picture of mother louse who we talked about in our uh patriarchy and beer episode and it says um i have to look underneath her boobs real witches fight the patriarchy with beer um so you can get that and all sorts of other shirts and you know i wore this to walmart the other day while i was like i was looking for something and i was like walking around walmart and like i kept getting like funny looks from from like people here and there and i was like what is going on today like this is so weird and i looked down and i remembered my shirt and i was like oh people are probably wondering what the heck's going on right like what that's about my shirt um it's uh, so our swag shop you can find a link to it on our website it's probably easiest way but it's with um a website called t public if you go to t public you can just like search for dig podcast and it will come up yep so So, um thanks for joining us and we will see you soon i mean here you here no you'll you'll hear us soon yeah bye but it wasn't good enough for a soldier to be george whitman wait form until a few decades into the 19th century when the huge economic shift known as the market revolution t- happened shoe making salutary and it's it salutary or salutary Sol- what do you, i don't know what salutary, salutary oh, means it's like healthy okay salutary Sal- i think means like goodbye anyway <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, where I'm going with this is that, um, you know, and obviously it wasn't that simple. Um, as Carol Emberton, Sarah's brilliant advisor, has argued, it wasn't quite that simple. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay, no. The market. Re- no, I thought I thought it was. Market re- I thought I thought it said revolve, so I was like. I was like ready to say that, and then I realized it did. No, like I don't know. I was gonna say the market revolved around. I thought that's what it. And so I was like the market revolved. Oh, and I was wrong. While Sam and other factory workers used falls jumping. Wait, falls jumping. (laughs) Oh my god. I fixed my ear. No, I didn't. What the fuck? I thought I did, and then drip some terrible, terrible poison. (laughs) That's what I need.
One legend about a brawl between two boatmen in Missouri. Uh, I thought you said Missouri. Okay. No, this is okay. Example Something from else. Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Barry explains that a clot like or <laughs> the a clot. It's like my, when Remy talks about UB, she always says the UB, and it always drives me crazy. Are you going to the UB? And I'm like, we don't stop saying that. <laughs> um. I don't know. His wife's name is Pat. You shouldn't. They live in NT, so <laughs> take that out. Okay. <laughs> I, he came to my wedding. <laughs> well, um, good. Good. That is a. I don't know. I don't know. Don't worry. I'll take it out. Story he doesn't listen baby. to our podcast. I can assure you that. So, um. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 